Thanks for checking out the Bridge Podcast. It's not a mistake you found us. We pray God speaks to you today. Check us out Sundays at 10.30 a.m. For more information, go to sfbridge.org. Well, I'm excited today to just jump right in, babe. Can you grab me my computer, please? This woman is truly incredible. Mark chapter 3. It's going to be on the screen behind you. Mark chapter 3. These are the 12 that Jesus appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Banerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Those are the 12 disciples. And don't you love a good nickname? Right? We see some nicknames in this text, but everybody loves a good nickname. Growing up in high school, I always wanted that cool nickname. Like, here comes the crusher, or here comes the stud, here comes the man. I never achieved any one of those. Uh, However, I did have two nicknames in high school both of which I despised. The first one was this, teacher's pet. You know, they do all those surveys in in high school, like most likely to be the prom queen, most likely to succeed in life, most likely to own a sports car, most likely to be an entrepreneur, most likely to kiss the teacher's butt, Derek mom. Just makes you feel good, right? Like, like that's the one you don't want to have. Like, everyone else is like, yeah, I love to be considered like the guy who has got a sports car. But like, no, I got the teacher's pet award, which just makes you feel so good. But let me tell you something. Nerds don't always get gypped. Because let me tell you something. The teacher's pet and the nerd got the prom queen. She was the prom queen. And uh, I'm just telling you, sometimes it pays to be smart. Just saying. That was my first nickname was Teacher's Pet. And oh boy, did I live up to that one. And oh boy, did I get told that one. But the other one was one that I inherited uh, in my middle school days. And it came from the mouth of my father. And my dad called me the Tornado. Which in hindsight sounds like a sweet name. Like Anoka, they are the Tornadoes. The whole school is named after Tornadoes. That's a sweet nickname. The reason he called me the Tornado, though, was because wherever I went, there was a path of destruction that followed me. Like, if I went from the living room to my bedroom, all the way from living room to bedroom, there was candy wrappers, phone cords, articles of clothing, a shoe. Like, There was always just a path of destruction that followed me. And I'm happy to tell you, I've not grown out of it. You can pray for my wife, because that tornado still runs through the house. And I found out that tornadoes reproduce. Now I've got two of them, and they make an absolute mess. Like, there's always stuff. And has anyone stepped on a Lego before? I, I, I visibly heard the groan. Okay, I'm not trying to take this away from you, but I've stepped on a Lego before, and it hurts really bad. But can I tell you what hurts worse? A Paw Patrol figurine. A little plastic dog with the pointy ears. When you step on that thing, there's an octave to your voice that reaches whole new levels as it digs into your skin. 
So our tornadoes apparently reproduce. And as much as I hated when my dad would walk into the room and go, TU is for tornado. Thanks, Dad. He was so right because I am an absolute tornado and I live up to that nickname all day long. Just like in the 12 disciples, Peter lived up to his nickname. If you were to open up a Greek translation of scripture, you would see that when Jesus called Simon Peter, he basically called him Cephas, which is what's translated into rock. And that's where we get the name Peter from because it's a whole situation. But basically, Jesus called Peter the rock, not like Dwayne the Rock Johnson, but like the original rock. Because he was going to be unshakable. He was going to be unwavering. He was going to be the rock upon which the early church was built on. But if you look at this life of Peter before Jesus died and rose again, you'd be like, what in the world is he talking about calling him the rock? That dude's everything but a rock. He's paper. That was for free. Okay? But he lived up to it because he became the rock that everything went on to. But then there's one other nickname that we see when they call the 12 disciples here that kind of gets passed over. Because you see the name Peter all throughout Scripture, all over the place. You see Peter, 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 Peter. But the other nickname listed here in Mark chapter 3, Banerges, also known as the Sons of Thunder, is only mentioned once in the entire Bible. Just once. And so you might sit there and go, if that was so significant that it got mentioned, why is it not mentioned other places? And I, 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 I tried to study it. There was no kind of reason as to why he called them the Sons of Thunder, why that stuck so hard and everything else. But what I did find out is there was a significance to that nickname. Like everything that Jesus did, there was a significance to why he called him Banerges, or the Sons of Thunder. Because a throne of thunder is something that you just like feel in your chest, right? When we're done with all this snow and ice and we get into the season of thunderstorms and you run to your garage to watch this raging storm that happens, we love a good roar of thunder, don't we? Like the boom! It just like hits you in the chest. At least a lot of the men do. We run into danger for some reason. A roar of thunder, though, is brash. It's explosive. It's fiery and intense. A thunder, a roar of thunder, it crashes. It rages. It can often just arise out of nowhere. So a son of thunder is a person that kind of is very zealous or passionate, can kind of just heat up quickly. This is the kind of person that goes from zero to 10 in about four and a half seconds with the right situation, who's just ready to throw down at any single circumstance. A son of thunder is not mentioned anywhere in scripture outside of Mark chapter three, when he calls these two brothers, the sons of thunder. And so I looked into it. Why? Why do you call them that? How'd they get that nickname? It's not explicitly mentioned, but a lot of scholars and experts point to a situation that happened in Luke chapter 9 that says this. As the time came, or I'm sorry, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. That's significant. But the people there in Samaria did not 
welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. There's a lot of details in there that are easy to miss, but are very, very significant. Jesus and his 12 disciples who are Jews are heading to Jerusalem. Resolutely, it says. This is at the end of Jesus' ministry. This is, he was heading to Jerusalem because he knew what awaited him was the crucifixion and death. So he was on a mission to Jerusalem, but he had to go through Samaria. So what we have here is there is some beef between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. There's an arch rivalry there. And I'm not talking about rivalry like Vikings fans and the other fans. <clears throat> I don't want to say the name. But Vikes fans and Packers fans, there's this, there's this fun rivalry between the two. And I'm not, when we talk about Jewish and Samaritan, I'm not talking about Vikings, Packers. The rivalry between these two nations was so, so intense, you have to think rival gangs in Los Angeles. There is like real bad hostility between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. And there's two big reasons why. The first one is this. There was a time in which the country of Israel was divided in half. And the nation of Assyria came in and invaded it. And the Jewish people stayed true to what God asked them to do. You only marry fellow Jewish people. But the Samaritans intermarried with the Assyrians. And so what happened is the Jewish people are like, we're the purebloods. We stay true to our convictions. And they quite literally called the Samaritans mixed blood. Because they intermarried with another people group. And it was a whole situation. And so there was just this, this hostility between the two people. On top of, there was two places of worship that they thought. The Samaritans thought we should only worship at Mount Gershom. That's the only place we can worship. But then the other people were like, in Jewish, and the Jewish people were like, we can only worship in Jerusalem. And I'm going to spare you all the details, all the rest of it. I'm not saying any of it's right, but I'm saying this interaction went back years and years and centuries before Jesus ever entered the scene. So here Jesus is. He's on his way to Jerusalem. But he has to go through Samaria to get there. Because there's one little geography lesson I got to give us to fully understand the power of this story. Who likes a good ribeye steak? A lot of people in first service didn't. I don't know why. Maybe because they're not awake for it. I don't know. I love a good ribeye steak. And the reason I bring it up is because the nation of Israel is shaped kind of like a ribeye steak. And if this is your encouragement to have steaks tonight, you're welcome. But a ribeye steak kind of has like that kind of like circular, rectangular, ovular kind of shape to it. That's Israel. So let me kind of paint this picture, all right? Galilee, where Jesus spent a lot of his time in ministry, was in the northern part of the stake, the northern part of the country. Then on the bottom, kind of the southern part, this is where Jerusalem was. This is where all the Jewish people went to go worship. This is where they went to spend time with God. This was kind of the place they pilgrimed to every single year. Any guess what's between the good part of the stake and the fatty part of the stake? Samaria, okay? Samaria, that is the, the area between the two. So let me kind of paint this picture for us because I didn't grow up in Israel, so it's hard to picture this. Let's say after today, after church, after you've been inspired to go eat a ribeye, you go to Walmart 
or Sonic or Chipotle or Sonic, whatever, whatever you like in Elk River today after church. I like to go to Elk River by going down Norris Lake, going that way, and having a 15-minute drive. What if I told you that you can't go through now then? As a matter of fact, if you want to get to Elk River, what you're going to have to do, you're going to have to go down Norris Lake, on to 47, through St. Francis, down to County Road 8, then go up through Zimmerman, then hit 169, and then go through Elk River. Because you can't go through now then. They don't like you. Just being honest, that's what happened. How many of you would be incredibly annoyed by that? Really? I would be so annoyed. I'd say, like, we're just going to eat at home. Because I'm not taking the extra 25 to 30 minutes to drive all the way through. It's annoying. But imagine you don't have a Chevy truck to get to Elk River. If you want to go through, you have to walk. Because that's what the Jewish people had to do. They had to walk around Samaria. It added days. It added calluses. It added a whole big deal because they had to go around Jerusalem. So now you have Jesus who's on a mission, trying to get to Jerusalem in a hurry because he knows this moment is coming. But he has to go through Samaria. So what he does is he sends his messengers on ahead and says, hey, we're coming. Are you okay if we pass through? And as they kind of walk towards Samaria, their messengers come back to them and say, no, you can't come through. They're not letting you come through. Enter in the sun's of thunder. Luke chapter 9, verse 54. When the disciples, James and John, the sons of thunder, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Whoa! That is like a, like, this is not you got cut off in traffic and you're praying for the person in front of you, you have a full bladder all of a sudden. This is like, I want them to feel my wrath. I want them to be destroyed. Because what's crazy about this is they had power to do crazy things. The disciples up to this point had had the power of God to heal blind people, to be there for them, to drive out demons. They had God's power inside of them. And so now they're going, God, do you want us to call down fire? to destroy them. Oh, but what's even crazier is there's history on their side. Because in 2 Kings chapter 1, Samaria is all kinds of corrupt. So look what Elijah does. Years before Jesus was ever born, Elijah answered the captain, if I am a man of God, may fire come down from the heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And then fire fell from the heaven and consumed the captain and his men. Can you imagine getting out of church and just seeing a wave of fire come down towards now then? It'd be crazy. It'd be wild. So they have this history on their side and they call it down because they're mad. Let's see how it works out for them. From the scene in the chosen. Rabbi, ah, you couldn't wait, could you? Yeah. Well, sorry, we just uh, wanted to clear a few things up, if that's okay. By all means, 
You Jewish boys are far from home. Yes, as a matter of fact, we are. Shalom to you too. Here's our traditional Jewish greeting for you. Don't lift a finger. That was a warning. Try it again and see what happens. Quiet, Big James. Shalom to you too. You filthy dogs! I said quiet. Let us do something. And what would that achieve? Defending your honor. They reviled and humiliated you. They deserve to have bolts of lightning rain down and incinerate them. Yes, fire from the heavens. Fire? You said we could do things like that. Say the word and it will happen. Why not? We knew we couldn't trust these people. We shouldn't have come here in the first place. They don't deserve you. Why do you think I had you work, Melek's field? What was I trying to teach you? help you think it was just to be more helpful or to be better farmers it was to show you that what we're doing here will last for generations what I told Fotina at the well and what she then told so many others it's sowing seeds that will have a lasting impact for lifetimes can you not see what's happening here these people that you hate so much are believing in me without even seeing miracles. It's the message, the truth that we're giving them. And you're going to get in the way of that because a few people from a region you don't like will mean to you that they're not worthy. What, you're so much better? You're more worthy? Well, let me tell you something. You're not. That's the whole point. It's why I'm here. I'm sorry. Sorry, Rabbi. As we gather others, I need you to help show the way. To be humble. We will. You wanted to use the power of God bring down fire to burn these people up? Well, it sounds a lot worse when you say it that way. <laughs> you too. You're like a storm on the sea. exploding out of your chests at every turn. <laughs> In fact, that's what I'm going to call you from now on. James and John, the sons of thunder. Isn't it powerful and fun to see the personality of Jesus? Because I don't, you don't raise your hand, but I'm going to raise mine. How many of you have been in that situation, <laughs> being a son of thunder? I may not look like it, but I got a lot of scrappy do inside of me that's ready just to tussle at the nearest thing. Luke chapter 9, verse 54. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and then he and his disciples went to another village. It doesn't explicitly say 
what the rebuke was said by Jesus. But I love how the chosen kind of paints the picture from context because here's what Jesus said in that clip that has wrecked me over and over and over again. It's the message. It's the truth that we are giving them. And you're going to get in the way of that because a few people from a region that you don't like were mean to you, that they're not worthy. What? You're so much better? You're more worthy? Well, let me tell you something. You're not. That's the whole point. That's why I'm here. And what's so important, you can't miss As someone who tends to kind of just question my own worth, you read that and you think that Jesus is kind of trying to punch you into the ground saying, you're not worthy enough. But the whole point of the context, the whole point of the situation is he's saying, no, you're worthy enough. Not because you've earned it, not because you're good enough, but because you're worthy enough because I'm calling you to that. You're this, you're worth this much to me. You're worth so much to me you 12, that I am going to die on your behalf. That's how much you mean to me. So when we read this, it's not about them having less worth. It's understanding that the people that they hated, the people they thought deserved God's wrath instead of God's mercy, the people that they think they're worth this much and these people are worth this much, Jesus is saying, no, no, you've got it wrong. They're worth as much as you do. They're worth this much. And we have to understand that Jesus came and died on behalf of those that are struggling. Jesus died for those that we think don't deserve it. Because he said it's the truth we're giving them and you're going to get in the way of that because a few people you don't like. There are people in this world that we don't like for various reasons. There are people we don't like that are from a certain political party that you can't stand. There are people you don't like from an organization that you think is vile, evil, rotten to its core. There are people in the corporations, in the boards that we can't support. There are people that are making lifestyle choices that you think are despicable. And Jesus is calling us not to criticize, not to sell them short, but to understand their worth is just as much as ours. That's the whole point. He didn't just die so that the good people could go to heaven. He died so that everybody would have a chance if they chose to return, repent, and go to him. The reason we worship, the reason we celebrate who God is, the reason we come to church week in and week out and thank God for who he is is because Jesus walked on this planet. He was fully human. He was fully man. He fully understood the anger, the difficulty that happens when people do things that are wrong to you. But he showed us there's a different way. He showed us there's a way that we can live to honor the Lord and do what he called us to do. If we don't believe that Jesus didn't have it the same way we did, you have to remember this. Jesus died at the hands of Roman people that took over his home country. He was treated as a criminal 
even though he never broke one law. He died as a sinner, knowing he never once sinned at all. Yet he was treated as a criminal, mocked to the very last second of his death, and took the sin of the world on his shoulders so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus was justified in being angry. He would have been justified in every single thing he did. As a matter of fact, Jesus had multiple opportunities to bring justice on the people that were treating him poorly, yet he chose not to. Why? Because he was dying in such a way as to show that every single person is worthy. In the Christian world, we use these two terms kind of interchangeably, mercy and grace. But there's two things you have to understand with mercy and grace. One is that it's comprehensive. Jesus' blood covers all of it, which means it's enough to cover when we have that angry outburst on the road or at home. It's enough to cover the lies and the deception and the manipulation that we know we've done. It's enough to do the little small thing that we know is wrong, but we're working on it. His love and his grace and his mercy is comprehensive. It covers that. In the same way, it covers the affair, the DUI, the murder, the abuse. It's comprehensive. It covers all of it. Big and small, it covers all of it. It gives us a fresh start, a new beginning, when we don't think we deserve it, because we don't. But he gives it anyway. But can I tell you the part that challenges me the most about God's love and grace? It's comprehensive. I get that. It covers everything. One size fits all. Here's the part that's crazy to me. God's grace is universal. It's available to everyone. Everybody. Whether you've grown up in the church, you grew up with Christian parents, you've known the church your whole life, you've been growing up in the kids' ministry, the whole thing, you've known church your whole life. It's available to you. But it's also available to the inmates in the maximum security prison that I saw this week on a powerful video of a worship leader and a pastor that went to this maximum security prison that preached the heart of Jesus, that were singing worship songs. And inmates that were in there for life were raising their hands in worship to Jesus. Can I tell you something? That's a reality of scripture. The love that Jesus has for you is the same love he has for that inmate. And in the human part of us, we struggle with that. It's like, but don't you know what, they, what they've done? Does it not mean anything to you? But what we miss is that it's not forgetting what they've done. Jesus didn't forget that the Samaritan treated him poorly. What he was epitomizing is it doesn't matter because what's more important is grace. What's more important is understanding that there's an opportunity for them to accept me into their life. And there's an option for them to experience the grace and the mercy of Jesus.
Second, pa- Second Peter chapter 3 says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Jesus will keep his promise to bring justice. He will make the evil things that are going unnoticed and undealt with, he will keep his promise of bringing justice to that. But he's being patient because he wants people to have the opportunity to turn from that and accept. When your kids made a mistake that you told them not to do, what happens if you just cut them off that first time they made a mistake? No, as a parent, you give them opportunities to make it right and correct it. Jesus is doing the same thing. The reason he's not back yet is because he's not done. He wants people to come to know him. So he's challenging us. He's talking to the sons of thunder and the son of thunder. Just don't get in the way of what I'm doing. I'm working on their heart. I'm working on their stuff. Don't get in the way by showing hate. Because can I tell you something? Hate is the opposite of love. And Jesus is calling us to love people as a way to exemplify his love. I'm not saying what they're doing is right. I'm not saying what they're doing is not sinful or even evil. But what I'm saying is my hate is misguided passion. Because the passion I have for all the stuff they're doing wrong should be the same passion I have to want them to know the mercy and grace of Jesus. That's what he was rebuking the sons of thunder for. He was saying, I love your passion. I love it. I'm asking you to redirect it. Don't hate the Samaritans. Love them. You don't have to be buddies with them. Don't have to hang out on the weekends. But you do have to love them because I love them. So if you're not loving the people that I love, you're not showing love to me. It's a challenging word, one that I've wrestled with personally. It's not fun to have Jesus rebuke you in that way, but look what it says in Proverbs 9. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise and they'll love you. Jesus challenged us because he loves us and he wants us to be the people he's called us to be. I don't want to play spoiler, but it's in the book, so I'm going to play spoiler. Sons of Thunder got rebuked on the outskirts of a Samaritan village. But the Sons of Thunder didn't stop there. James bigger, taller one. Looks like John Stamos. James, the son of thunder, was the first disciple of the twelve to be martyred for his faith. In Acts chapter 12, we see that he was killed for his faith. Do you mean to tell me the same guy that was ready to throw down with the whole village willingly died for his faith, knowing he was doing nothing wrong? Yep. John, his brother, He wrote the Gospel of John, even though he was uneducated, inexperienced, wasn't a writer, he was a fisherman. We channeled that passion to the Gospel and writing it down. The Gospel of John was written by John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, written by John. 
In the book of Revelation, John was the subject at hand. So I want you to see the passion that we have inside of us, this, this gumption, this passion is not a bad thing. Sometimes it's just misdirected and mismanaged. Jesus is calling us to have that same fervor, that same passion for him and for his people. You're still going to have people that rub you the wrong way. You're still going to be mistreated. I'm just calling you and I'm challenging you the same way I'm challenging myself. Do people know me more for what I'm not against, what I'm not supporting? Or do they know me for the love that I'm sharing? What would happen if I have a conversation with somebody that quite clearly we disagree? But it was done respectfully and kindly. How would that look in our world? I don't know about you, but there's a lot of division right now. But there can be differences and not hate. And that's what I believe we as a church need to start embodying. When we disagree, when we don't have support, when we don't see eye to eye, will we still choose to love the soul behind the person and behind the action? Because that is what Jesus is calling us to do. And as we choose to love those around us, as a way to honor him and love him. Watch how you will be different from the inside out as Jesus inside of you will go on. So I have two questions for you this morning. One, who is it? Who is it? Because you have been speaking, I'm sure there's one person or a group of people that you know, this is my Achilles is it? Here's a second harder question. How are you going to respond to that? Maybe you have to pray about it. Maybe you know what you want to do, what you're supposed to do, but it's difficult. I challenge you. Choose to love. Don't have to support. Don't have to condone. Don't have to agree with. But we do have to love. So who will you love this week? Well, not of manifesting your own strength but relying on his so I want to pray for you today to step out and do that so Father I thank you for this room I thank you for each person I thank you for what you're doing Lord I ask that today as we go from this place may God may we go in love may we go in passion may we go in fervor for you and for your people And Jesus, as you continue to shape us, as you continue to mold us, as you continue to stretch us and challenge us into becoming the people you've called us to be, I pray, God, that we would accept that rebuke. We would accept that challenge, that encouragement. We would accept it and in replace and exchange of it, Jesus, there would be a whole newfound love for you and a purpose to our life that we didn't have before. So Jesus, today I ask and I pray do a new work? Would you challenge us? And God, for that person or that group that we know is going to just royally upset us this week or this month, Jesus, give us the ability, the supernatural strength to choose love over hate and move in and through them. Jesus, be with those that are far from you. Be with those that feel far off. Jesus, 
Show them that you make them worthy, Lord. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen. Amen. It's a challenging one. It's a tough one, but it's one that, as this week we put into practice, it's been incredible to see the transformation. This has been a podcast of The Bridge Church. Have a great week. Stop in Sunday sometime and visit. If you would like to give, you can do so online at sfbridge.org. Have a great week.